0: Pull up to the bumper game with the signal Cover me cause I'm changing I got a handle on it My
1: life i a broken When I get to where I'm going Gonna have you This is the Mothers of Reinvention, and I am your host, Jess Zano. On every episode of this weekly podcast, I connect with rebel women who share their never before heard stories about how they reinvented themselves and set their course to success. The woman you'll meet today is one of those people that are so strong in spirit intellect, and intuition that when she hits supersonic status, and she will, it'll be no surprise. She is the commissioner for Los Angeles County Children and Families and chairwoman of the board of directors for the anti-recidivism. How do I say that word?
0: Recidivism. (laughs) (laughs) You're not the only one.
1: Anti-recidivism. I can't. You've already told me how to say it. I can't say it. What is it?
0: Anti-recidivism coalition.
1: There you have it. Both for which she advocates and addresses issues that disproportionately affect communities of color. She is the CEO of CASA in Los Angeles, or Court Appointed Social Advocates for Children in Los Angeles, and as a former foster kid herself, is a passionate social justice advocate for issues ranging from juvenile justice and foster care to human sex trafficking and homelessness. She is mother and stepmother to six children, and she has created all of this on her own, starting from a pretty rough beginning. She is wildly impressive and strong. Please welcome my friend, Clarity Chandler Cole.
0: Thank Hi. you so much, Jess. Hi. Oh my gosh. I am so humbled and grateful to be here and that you even considered me for this. So just thank you so much. Really appreciate you.
1: I hope that you receive that you are truly one of the most spectacular and impressive humans. With the love that you give your family, yourself to others, it has, when we met, which was funny enough, we met in India while studying global purpose and personal passion with the Dalai Lama, as one does. We met before that, though, right? Because we were like, hey, we live in LA. Let's meet up before
0: we sure did. We where sure did. did, we did. I don't remember where we met, but we had. I remember we had remember. lunch. Where did we meet?
1: We met at Mama Shelter in Hollywood. Hollywood. In right, Hollywood. and I've been back twice since. <laughs> it's
0: such a <laughs> It is good. It is good. But yeah, we met because we were both in LA going to India, and and thought it would be great to know a few folks going beforehand, and yes. Yes. you know, just fell in love with you, your spirit, who you were. So I knew it was going to be an uh, amazing trip.
1: Same, same. I remember you were coming from work on your lunch break and we talked about, I think we were talking about like Ethiopian food or world travel. And I just remember thinking like, Of course, this woman jumped out of, like, running the business of where she is to grab some, like, international cuisine at some cool hotspot in Hollywood. And then just growing to know you over our time together. I'm just so grateful to you for having this conversation with me. So, thank you. Of course. So, let's just jump right in. Uh, As I said, I would love for people to know you and and your story. Will you just start there? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I always... Try to think about what's part of my
0: story. Like, where do I start? Because there's so many, you know, entry points that affected my life, but I'm born and raised here in Los Angeles, California. I grew up in what I thought was a pretty, you know, normal life. I had two parents. My parents were married. They both had, we had, you know, six of us total. My mom and dad had six kids in an eight and a half year period because my dad really wanted a boy. So they came last. So we grew up, you know, in LA in a really tiny apartment. My father was a preacher. My mom was, you know, in the choir and working, you know, at Ralph's grocery store. She came from Baltimore to Los Angeles in her 20s to be a lawyer and then ended up being a preacher's wife. I think that contributed to her not being as, as happy and joyful as she thought she would be. And, you know, life was OK. You know, we have food on the table, you know, a roof over our head, you know, two loving parents. And then the normality, all of that changed. When I was 10 years old, my parents got divorced. My mother was battling breast cancer at the same time. It was really nasty. We went from being poor to really, really poor and just really experienced poverty on a whole nother level. You know, my dad and mom really sheltered us from the oppressive conditions we were living in. They made life happy and full. And even though there was a lot of problems and challenges, it was normal. We didn't realize it was problems until we got older. And during that time, my dad kind of, you know, was really angry that my mom divorced him because, you know, preachers don't want to get divorced. And so he kind of took it out on her by trying to prove to her that she needed him. And so he didn't help support us. And, you know, we went without. Yeah, of course, he said, you know, he tried. He did a lot of things. But at the end of the day, we suffered and struggled as a result of, you know, now being, you know, raised by a single mom who was battling breast cancer and we're on welfare and we're You know, really just struggling to survive, and she ended up having, you know, a lot of mental health issues as a result having cancer and being on medication and just the trauma of, you know, growing up in this world. And so we started to do little things to survive. And mind you, at this time, my older sister also went away to juvie. She was 12 years old. I was 10. My mother just couldn't deal with it, so she went to juvie and ended up being in foster care from 12 to 18 years old. So here I am, the second oldest now you know, kind of forced to be the oldest sibling and take care of my younger siblings. So I remember just trying to find different things to do so that we could eat, to put food on the table. I remember one of my teachers had this big jar of quarters under her her desk in the classroom. I would always stay after to help her clean up because I had to wait for my youngest brother to get out of preschool. And one day I found this jar of quarters and I started to steal quarters a little bit out of time. And I would go and buy us Taco Bell for dinner and little different things. And I remember one day I went back and every time I went back, the quarter jar kept being refilled. It was almost as if she knew I was stealing it. But then it got a lot worse. We got Section 8 and we moved into this really bad neighborhood. And we were literally, I was literally forced to choose between joining a gang and selling drugs or, you know, being told that we're going to harass you and your siblings every day that you walk to school. So I went from being this, you know, straight A student who loved to read to a gangbanger drug dealer overnight at the age of 14. And I just felt like I needed to protect my siblings. I needed to be there for them. I needed to, you know, ensure their survival and safety. And then one day I, selling drugs, you know, got really scary. You know, I was only selling marijuana, mind you, but it got really scary and I decided to stop and I went started stealing. So I would steal food and clothes for, you know, my siblings and I, one day I went into the Ross dress for less right there on third in Fairfax and got caught stealing underwear for my little sister. And in that moment, you know, they call your mom because it's petty theft and tell them to come pick you up. And she told them to take me to jail. And I was heartbroken because, you know, one, who's gonna be there to take care of my younger siblings? And two, you know, how could she, you know, tell them to take me away when even though she didn't agree with some of the things I was doing, she knew I was helping put food on the table. And so I went to juvenile hall, was handcuffed, treated like a criminal for stealing, you know, fruit of the loom underwear for, you know, you could see the size on the pack. It was clearly for a child. And, you know, realizing in that moment that no one once asked me, Why are you stealing underwear? You know, what's happening in your home? What could we do to Supporting you and your family, you know, what mom would say, take her to jail. Let's go figure out what's happening over there to see what support we can offer the mom and their kids. Nothing. They handcuffed me, put me in a police car and took me to jail. And then, you know, from there, it was a series of juvenile hall, going back to juvenile hall, going to foster care, being abused and exploited in the foster care system and just really witnessing a system that, you know, dehumanized children, that treated children as if they were trash, as if we were just commodity as if we were failures and as if we had no worth in life in this world. And after being just so abused and traumatized in my group home, I ran away, ran away into homelessness and poverty and and getting pregnant at the age of 18. And, you know, this is just a snippet of my story, but just experiencing so many things no little girl should have to ever experience or go through. And I, you know, just just remember hitting rock bottom at that point. Just remember being homeless and Being ready to die or go to jail and literally not caring, just not caring and, you know, getting pregnant with my son just like changed the world for me. You know, he gave me a reason to live and to start over. And that's kind of where my my reinvention (laughs) started.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that story, because it is one of such resilience and strength and bravery that every time I hear it and I have heard it. It takes my breath away in how just resilient and how you have reinvented yourself from that place. I also respect you and what you had to do. And I think it's so amazing and inspirational and aspirational that you've taken those rock bottom moments or the rock bottom moment and use it to fuel all of the work that you do now and how you are a shining light in advocacy around dismantling systems in these buckets. Can you talk a little bit about what happened after the baby was born?
0: Yeah, so it was interesting when I got pregnant, it was by, you know, my ex-boyfriend and I, in that moment, was headed straight to get an abortion. Like that was, there was no other plan there was no way in hell that I was going to bring a a child into this world to suffer. I knew I could not provide for it. I knew that, and mind you, when I ran away from my group home, I was out. I had a warrant out for my arrest because you know, you're a kid. And if you run away from an oppressive system, you're criminalized for it. And so I had a warrant out for my arrest. And so, my boyfriend at the time told me no. He was like, we're not getting an abortion. We're, we're keeping this baby. And then his family was, you know, they welcomed me. It was so weird and odd because I wasn't used to that. And so them, someone saying, we want you. We want your baby. We're going to welcome you with loving arms into our family. It just gave me this sense of hope and purpose and love. But and at the same time, I'm like, what am I going to do? I have this, this baby coming. Like I don't even know. Where to start? But I knew the very first thing I had to do was turn myself in. And I remember speaking with a few police officers that I knew and, you know, in Long Beach, and they were like, yeah, it's a, it's petty theft, Nobel warrant, just turn, and I had just turned 18, mind you, so I was no longer considered a minor. Yeah, turned 18 during the time I had run away. And they were like, just turn yourself in. They'll make you do like, you'll spend the night in the precinct and then they'll, it'll, you'll see the judge. It'll be over. And so I do that knowing that I'm pregnant, keeping this secret, by the way, to want anyone to know I was pregnant because I knew that would be used against me. And I knew also knew that I had to turn myself in once I made the decision to keep him because if I would have given birth to him and got caught later, my child would have ended up in the same system that I ran away from and it would have been impossible to get him back. So I turned myself in, ended up being the same judge who several times kept putting me back into the system over and over repeatedly for um for nothing. And she gave me six weeks in um county jail, six to eight weeks in Twin Towers County jail. So now I went from juvie to big girl prison, you know, women prison. And it was at the time when the jails were overcrowded and so there was nowhere to have separate you know non-violent offenders from violent offenders and so I was literally I had you know a woman above me who was there for murder a woman under me who was there for murder and they actually were so, super sweet interestingly enough they were there for muttering the guys that raped them and that trafficked them so it was interesting to see the, the motherly dynamic but I remember turning myself in doing my little stint and getting out and then really trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do with my life for this kid? And I was literally sitting on the couch and that that commercial came on that we're, you know, from ICDC college. And it was like, get your ass up off the couch and do something with your life. And so I did. I checked into trade school, attended my whole pregnancy. And then, you know, we were promised to get a good job afterwards, could not get a job. And it was, you know, just devastating that I went through this whole process and couldn't find a job. And then I sat back one day and I was like, Charity, what do you want to do with your life? You know, what's the plan? And I just remember, you know, at that time, this, these thoughts coming to me of people telling me I was worthless. I wouldn't be anything. The only thing I'll be capable of doing is laying on my back. Um, I wasn't smart. And I just felt so defeated. But then at the same time, at this point, I had just given birth to my son and I refused to not be what he needed me to be. And I'm on welfare at this time and getting WIC, and just taking advantage of all these programs. But I realized that. If I was going to be someone, I had to believe that I could be someone I could no longer succumb to society's standards of what I could be. And the crazy thing was that just that I could literally grow up and be nothing, not go to college, be on welfare with six kids, not be successful, go to jail, be homeless. And no one would question it. No one would have wondered why charity didn't, because it was expected of people like me to grow up and not do anything, to not be anything, to be the statistic. And I just refused to be a statistic, but I knew I had to do something with my mind. And I remember sitting down one day and taking out these little sticky notes and writing on them, everything negative that was told about me, Um that I was ugly, that I was stupid, that I was a hoe, I was a slut, I wouldn't be anything, I was worthless. And I wrote them all down. And tore them up in little bitty pieces and, and threw it in the trash can. And then I did that same activity. But this time I wrote words that I either wanted to be or words I've heard other people tell other things like beautiful, strong, smart, amazing, worthy. And I took these little sticky notes and put them all around my mirror. And every day I would force myself to say them and I would say them out loud and just my, my voice would be shaking while, I, while I said them because these were things I did not believe about myself. These are things I didn't think I were true. These are things I didn't think I could ever be. But then I said them so much and said them out loud. And I remember my mom had given me this book by Joyce Meyer called The Power of Your Words. And so I believe that our words are manifested in the universe. And if we speak them out loud that, you know, we, we, we put attention into the universe. So I started to say them every day and I would look at myself in the mirror and then I would start to see this beautiful girl and this smart girl. And, you know, she's wonderful. She's all these things. And I remembered all the things my mom and dad told me when I was little. And I was like, oh, you know, I am all these things. And then I started to literally speak life back into myself. Unknowingly, I spoke value into myself. I spoke worth into myself. And it got to the point where couldn't nobody tell me? I wasn't any of those things on those sticky note. I got, you just got to the point where I just got this confidence out of nowhere, almost if it was divine intervention. And then I started applying for jobs I wasn't qualified for and getting them because I walked in with this confidence and said, and started demanding everything. Everyone said I couldn't have, and I got, you know, a job at 19 years old as a senior branch account executive, and I was like, whoa, you know, I got this job just because I said something super slick and ignorant, and the guy liked it because it was sales, and that's what he wanted, and then that job allowed me to just have even more confidence, and I was, while I was working there, I started going to school. I started going to West LA Community College, and, you know, it was funny because I At that time, I had ditched most of high school. I was selling drugs and was in and out of high school, really didn't have a high school education. So when I went, I didn't remember what an adjective was. I remembered, you know, noun because of a song, person, place, or thing. But I sat in the front row of my class and absorbed everything. Ended up being in the honors transfer program and then transferred to Loyola Marymount University where I graduated in the top 2% of my class. And then went to graduate school and now I'm getting my doctors and I just kept going after just different things. But through that process, I was like, I had to remind myself, like, charity, don't lose sight of what you went through. Like this voice kept saying, don't lose sight of what you went through, because I didn't want to be that girl who went through everything I went through, became successful and then nothing. For some reason, it was important for me to reach back and show these other little girls because and realizing that there were so many girls and boys like me that went through what I went through that didn't think they could do anything or be anything and when I was on my journey of finding myself I remember looking left and right and not being able to see someone that looked like me that came from the community I came from and experienced the things I experienced to say that wow I want to be like that I can be like that because they did it and I literally created this person like I was at the very bottom, so I might as well reach very high and just create this creature <laughs> and see how close I can get. And remember that, just remember that process of creating, you know, who you see today that I wanted to be, maybe be a source of hope and inspiration for other little girls and boys so they could say, if charity can do it, then hell, you know, maybe I can too. And so I started, you know, looking for organizations that were helping foster youth, not with the intention of to help foster youth just yet are people that were in system impacted. I wanted to understand what the hell happened. What went wrong? You know, even my journey of trying to get resources and, and be who I was. There were so many barriers through the, in the process, so many hardships. And I had to like beg and plead and I had to be grateful. (laughs) It's like, you want me to be oppressed? And grateful when you give me a $25 gift card. I'm like, no, I need resources. I need, you know, we really need to level the playing field. I need to be able to, you know, go to college and be a mom and do all these things without struggling. And then I just, I got introduced to this organization called, while in college, called the Anti-Recidivism Coalition. And that's when I I learned that, oh, wow, there's people out here advocating for us. They're advocating to change systems and policies and they want to do something amazing. And so I just started getting involved at a very grassroots level in organizations that were creating change in our world and our society. And from there, I just I just didn't stop.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful. I have so many questions. I don't want to go back because we are speaking truth into present and who you are. But I would like to know who were saying those bad things to you? Oh,
0: my gosh. Social workers, caseworkers, the officers in juvenile hall, they were ruthless. And it, it was literally adults who were having issues in their own personal life. And they took out all their adult aggressions out on children. We were the verbal punching bags for them when their marriages weren't right, when their relationships weren't going well, when they were stressed about work. They took it all out on us coming there and punching us verbally made them feel better, made them feel bigger. And oftentimes, it didn't have anything to do with race or sex. It just had power. 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 It has to do with power. Yeah.
1: Is there, are there systems, better systems, healthier systems in place to have those roles be filled by people that might be in, like, therapy? Or does it continue that it's a position where people can continue to say those things to children?
0: It's the same, you know, and it's because these systems were never created to help the people that are currently in these systems. These systems are overwhelmed with black and brown children and families and people. And these systems were never created to help us and to heal us and to restore us. They were created to criminalize us and to surveil us and oppress us because it's very profitable to do so. So in those systems, you're going to have people that realize that you're dealing with a very vulnerable population of people that we can control. We can have power over we can do what we want and there's no oversight. So no, these systems, you know, I am an abolitionist at heart and I believe that we need to, you know, to have, to, to really change our communities, we need to abolish the systems that are in place and create new ones that are birthed out of the community, not out of government per se, but out of the community Um, because it takes the village. We can't keep saying it takes a village to help a child or to help people, but the village is nowhere in sight. They're not able to, they're underfunded and under-resourced. So no, the systems are still whack, Jess, unfortunately.
1: I don't want to glorify this at all, but I find that gangs are meant to support their community.
0: Yeah, that's what they were intentionally created for. But unfortunately, well, the thing with the gangs is, I think of it. You know, there's this thing that's used called "crabs in a bucket," right? But it's normally used to say that black people are like crabs in a bucket. We just fight each other and kill each other and harm each other. And when I put "crabs in a bucket," I'm like, okay. These are crabs that are out of their element. They are no longer in an environment where they could thrive and be whole and be happy. They're forced into a situation where they are no longer looking to the left and looking to the right and saying, this is my brother. This is my friend. This is my community member. They're trying to fight to get to the top. They're in a condition where they're forced to fight for their survival. And so when we look at gangs, we look at gangs as people who who come together in their cliques to do that, to figure out how are we going to collectively survive in this very oppressive condition where we're forced to fight each other. And people normally hurt the people that are closest to them, whether they want to or not. That's why siblings always fight. You know, you hurt and then you go to school and you're nice to your little friend. You're forced, you know, to fight people that you're closest with. But when it's coupled with, you know, the conditions that, you know, breed anger, that breed violence, that breed oppression, that breed poverty... You know you're going to see a lot of black on black crime, brown on brown crime, white on white crime and violence it, it you know it literally happens everywhere, and so we need to create you know systems and environments um, and communities that are healthy because we don't have healthy communities right now.
1: Do you feel as though there are some standard tent poles within the gang system or community that can actually apply to helping build a healthier world, system? I would say yes. I would say at the end of the
0: day, like the one, the one thing about being
1: in a gang outside
0: of having to prove myself and fight and show that I was a soldier was the fact that we all wanted the same thing at the end of the day. We didn't compete within our gang. We didn't compete with each other. We didn't care who had the best shoes or the best this or best that. We shared everything. If one had something, everyone had it. And We collectively came together to ensure that everyone within our Gang was whole and pure and if you needed something, you could count on that person for safety or support or food or anything. Literally take the clothes off each other's back and give it to each other. And so if we, if we were to apply this throughout, you know, the world, this idea that we are all this large community. We are, you know, my, me and my siblings, we call ourselves, we're the Chandler gang, you know, Chandler gang, you know, because we know that, you we know, we're going to protect each other. We're going to look out for each other. It doesn't mean we're going to ensue violence. You know, it doesn't mean we're going to have riots and all these things that actually gang members don't do. But if we were to really look at what are the reasons why they click up? You know, what are the reasons why they get together and what actually happens in those environments? They're happy. They're laughing. They're thriving. They're finding common things that are, are common about them and they, you know, How do I say this? They they use it to relate to each other. Sometimes being able to relate to someone on any level, whether it's something that's seen as unacceptable or not, you know, it just brings a type of of peace and warmth and, you know, even community. So I think if we were to really look at the intention behind games, why they were created, why they exist and we take out you know, the oppressive conditions that lead to violence, that lead to competition, that lead to anger, then I think we would, we could actually learn something from them.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's synonymous with running a company, to be perfectly honest. So much success that businesses have is based in the, the same methods that you would apply for any strong, happy, one-for-all community, So I think it's so uh, fascinating to hear more about it because it's just human condition, really, at the end of the day. That's what I love. What I'm particularly interested in in being alive is like I truly believe, yes, there are systems and oppression and so much stuff that still is broken and backwards and bad. But at the end of all of it is like our through line of just humanity, and that we're all coming from the same, dare I use the word, energy. We're born into whatever we're born into, and that certainly can be privilege or not, but um, we're all born of the same thing. Yeah, I truly respect. I respect people just like in general for that reason. Uh so you now have gone to school and you're getting out of school and you went to you get this unbelievable academics invitation or you made the choice to continue your higher education. So what happens after that?
0: So I just ended up just getting more amazing jobs and then while in those amazing jobs, realizing, oh, I could take it a notch up I could take it a notch higher. And and I've always been smart. I was before I went through everything I went through, I was Always a straight A student. I love to read. And so I always had like that foundation of wanting to know, wanting to learn, wanting to do. And I always wanted to be someone. I just never knew what I would be. And so I remember just getting jobs, you know, my most, my, my current, my current job even now is the CEO of Casa LA. You know, it's funny because I have always advocated on the side for child welfare issues. This is my first job, believe it or not, working in child welfare, and I'm the CEO. I've always worked in nonprofits or for schools and doing, you know, a lot of contract management and, you know, running organizations and running programs. But I've always advocated on the side for child welfare, either on committees or commissions or being a president of a political political action committee. Um, I never wanted my paycheck tied to my advocacy. Because I am a rebel and I knew that if I was going to advocate for change and if I was going to amplify my voice in the way I wanted to, that it could not be tied to my paycheck because I would get fired so fast because I would be the one saying, no, that's not what sh- we should be saying. Or no, I'm not going to use my story, my very vulnerable story, you know, to your benefit or for your agenda. Or no, this is not how we treat these poor little black and brown kids. You know, we don't come into these communities and tell them we know what the solution is to their problems. And so I would always advocate on the side. And so when this opportunity came up, I had to really think, is this organization ready for my type of leadership? Because I didn't want it to come, I didn't want to come into a job where it's like, Oh, you know, I have a cute little CEO title and I'm, you know, bowing down and doing what everyone else wants me to do. So it's interesting interviewing and kind of, you know, making it very clear up front. I plan to shake shit up. Like that's the plan. Are you with me? <laughs> you know, here's my stance on racial justice. Here's my stance on social justice. This is how I feel about racism, yada, yada, yada. And they were on board. They were ready to go. And so I got this job and just have this amazing opportunity and positionality in the courts, especially to just do real good for children and advocate in a way that, you know, a lot of organizations don't have the ability to advocate because we actually get to go to court and show up for kids. So it's pretty cool just having, you know, just to knowing your worth, you know, knowing your value, having your non-negotiables and going after everything you want, but not because you want success necessarily, or it really depends on how you define success. But, you know, my success is tied to my activism. It's tied to my ability to impact communities. It's tied to my ability to say that maybe one day my children can grow up in a world where, you know, they have playing field is it's it's leveled hopefully or they have access they have resources they have means they have insight they know their rights and so for me that's you know they know their history <laughs> my goodness they know their history uh, they know that their brilliance comes from somewhere um, and so that was success for me and so being able to advocate for that now it's just very empowering
1: I know that you, it is important for you to teach your children who they are and where they come from. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you do to empower and enforce who they are?
0: Yeah. So it's funny because I didn't start learning about or really knowing about my Black history until the last 10 years, honestly. And so whenever a holiday comes up, I always ask them, like, what are you school, you know, Martin Luther King Day or on Thanksgiving Day or most recently um, Fourth of July. And then I give them this whole other story that's erased from our history. And so we celebrate Juneteenth, for instance, we celebrate, you know, when slavery was abolished and we walk through with that men, and how, you know, the folks in Galveston, Texas had to wait two years after slavery ended to gain their independence and why we're celebrating that. And so, for instance, for Fourth of July, you know, we kind of walk through, you know, what do you feel about Fourth of July? What are we celebrating today to hear how well they articulated the holiday we're celebrating. And then I was like, did you know, you know, black people weren't free during the 4th of July? And they're like, what? And so I kind of walked them through, you know, where our ancestors were at that time. We walked through the history um, and what was happening during that time and what, um, and then how, you know, even through, even after, you know, our emancipation, you know, Jim Crow and how we were treated. And I do it in a way where I don't want them to, you know, hate white people. I want them to see that we come from, you know, situations where we were enslaved, you know, and even removing the word slavery, because I'm like, we were not slaves. We were enslaved, you know, really breaking down what that meant for them and really letting them see that, yes, this is what we went through. One, our history didn't start with slavery, but It's important for them to know that we went through what we went through and that people fought along the way to fight for our rights and freedoms. Because I feel like this generation, because our history has been so erased that they don't all know, you know, what happened. They don't know people that there were people, their ancestors fought hard for what they have today. And so we cannot take life for granted. We cannot get comfortable and complacent because we think life is good, you know, because my kids are, you know, I'm like. I have moments where I'm like, am I raising entitled little brats? Like, no, pause, pause. And so I just go back and teach them about not just our history, but even other people's cultures and history. You know, if we hear something about, you know, they have a friend that's Korean or they have a friend that's Irish, you know, let's learn about their history. Let's learn about what's going on in their lives so that when we approach them, we're very aware of how we communicate. We're very aware of how we treat people. Um, and we're also very aware of how people should treat us and how people should show up for us. So I just teach them little tidbits here and there. You know, I do a lot of research to find the characters and the people that they're not going to hear about. Uh, we hear about, you know, Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. We love them, but I also want them to know about, you know, other people, you know, current people, too, that existed and that paved the way for them. So as I do my research and as I learn, I just help my kids learn along the way because I'm unfortunately at 35 years old. You know, still learning my history, and I just want them to know that they come from a line of brilliant, brilliant people that fought hard, that paved the way, and that they're not allowed to take any of that for granted today.
1: Has there been anything that your small children or older children have said to you that have just truly inspired you or changed your thought on something?
0: Oh my gosh. Uh, what don't they say? I feel like it's funny because everything I try to teach them to apply society they like use against me. It's <laughs> like, oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, like, use it, you know, don't use it with insane. me. Um <laughs> it's not so much that they, you know, they inspire me by their mere existence, but it's the fact that they ask questions. They question everything to the point where it's forced me and my husband to really be very thoughtful and intentional about how we communicate things. So I know that for us, we can't just talk about we can't just, you know, ever come in with our kids and say, oh, you know, we were oppressed. We were this. You know, This happened to us. They're like, why? What happened? What happened? How do we show up? How do we how do we treat people? How do we act? How do we respond? They always want to know, OK, what's next? And so and they, they're they're critical thinkers. And so for us, for me, I had years where it was easy for me to just. Be mad, be angry, place the brain, say, you know, talk about, you know, what I experienced in the conditions, but I was never really critically thinking about how I respond to it, how I show up, you know, how I, you know, the research and how I learn. And so even now, the whole reason why I'm in a doctor's program is because my kids have really taught me to just be more analytical, more critical, to really think about the words that are coming out of my mouth and to not say something that I've heard without having the research to support it. So I can't sit here and say, oh, um, this person is racist, for instance, without really understanding what racism means. I can't sit here and say, oh, well, um, this is what this person thought or this is what happened without really researching. Is this what actually happened or am I repeating something I heard on social media? And so they just question every day to the extent where I'm forced to educate myself and forced to learn and forced to legitimize (laughs) what i'm actually saying and so and man i'm trying to think i'm trying to think after this call just different ways they've inspired me but just the fact that they they force me to think and to ask questions and to give them the correct answers
1: what i love is that they truly force you to walk your talk at all times they do it's like Uh, a research paper cite your cite your source (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of which, will you help me understand what recidivism means
0: so recidivism is when people go back to jail, so you get out of jail and you do something to reoffend according to the definitions of our justice system, and you go back to jail
1: You thank you okay. you
0: thank you anti recidivism is to prevent people from going back to jail
1: Yes, you thank you, okay. And thank you for that. With the work that you're doing now and the advocacy you're doing now, do you want to just, I would love for you, like, to, is there any light that you want to shed on anything in particular or where someone may get their start in some research behind this? To, if they hear this and want to support in some way, what's available?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's so many.
1: there's so many
0: things to advocate for right now, but I'm particularly interested in... You know, our children that are experiencing, our children and families that are experiencing the foster care system, and primarily because we can't talk about criminal justice reform. We can't talk about homelessness. We can't talk about poverty. We can't talk about um, access to college, economic justice, anything without looking at the group of people it most impacts. Our children in our foster care system, there's so many in the system that shouldn't be there because of, you know, mandated reporting laws where anybody can pick up the phone and say, hey, this mom, I don't think she's a good mom. And they come out and investigate and impose all this trauma on your family and remove your children if you're black and brown because they this assumption that we're not good parents. And then you're engulfed into this system that has ridiculous requirements for you to get your child back. I mean, then you're you're literally just, you know. I can't just, I can't even, I can't even, I don't, we don't have enough time. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so, but these youth end up having really terrible experiences in the foster care system. They're not, you know, treated well. They're not resourced. They're not loved. They're not protected. They're denied opportunity after opportunity, whether it's, it's being able to see their family, whether it's having stability, you know, in schools and environments, they're moved around so much and they're constantly told, they're worthless and won't be amount to anything. And yes, there's one-offs. There's good foster homes and good foster parents and good social workers, but most of them aren't. Okay. Let's just be clear. Most of them aren't. Um, and so they're, they're having these terrible experiences in the foster care system and then expected to be these bright scholars and, you know, our future, you know, after the fact, and the reality is they're not, they have terrible experiences in the system and then terrible outcomes. When they get out, they, um, they end up being our next generation of inmates and homeless people and people experiencing poverty um, and everything else everyone's fighting for. And so I think it's important that we really look at our foster care system, that we collectively get together and see that this is the pipeline to all of these other injustices we're fighting for, all of these other injustices that we're investing billions of dollars into not really respond to honestly <laughs> you know it's a it's a system that it's a very profitable system to continue with these conditions to continue with this oppression and to continue putting us in situations that we know you know there's analytics that are done to prove that if this child doesn't have a certain educational level by third grade or if this child is in the foster care system, we can guarantee that we will have bodies in our prisons, we will have bodies on the street, we will will continue to have reasons to demand taxes on people and to demand funding be allocated to all these government programs to respond to this need that we're not really responding to or really trying to respond to because we want to continue this and uh, to perpetuate this system. So if we were to advocate for these youth and we were to collectively come together Um, Not just as allies, as someone that says, oh, I care, here's $20 to donate to your organization, but as co-conspirators, people, regardless of what color you are, where you come from, your socioeconomic status, we all collectively stand up and say, this is a problem that we need and we need to address it. We need to look at the laws. We need to look at what's allowing these conditions to exist and we do something about it. You know, advocacy is standing up for things that are wrong. It's 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 not being the voice of the oppressed. It's amplifying and uplifting the voice of the oppressed. It's saying that I'm going to be black and brown or oppressed or somebody that's marginalized, regardless of what color you are. And I'm no longer going to serve at the bottom, but I'm going to lead our issues at the top. And we're going to demand that we lead our issues and we're going to demand support. And that we're going to need co-conspirators, which are people that are not impacted by the things we're impacted by that are willing to insert themselves in a way that's going to leverage their privilege, leverage, leverage their positionality, leverage the platforms they have and say, I'm going to use this for good. I'm going to insert myself, take risks if I have to and fight alongside you um, for change. And so advocating at this level for youth that are in families that are in the foster care system, primarily not because they're abused, not because they've experienced abuse, but because they're poor. And because when you're poor, we tie that to um, neglect and it's cause and reason to not help our communities, not support them. It's been those billions of dollars that we're using on a failed system to resource our communities, but to you know perpetuate the failures that have existed you know since slavery.
1: I am so fired up by your passion and knowledge on it, so much so. I mean, you speak like a true leader, so if I may, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about what it is to be now a CEO. Like what is, how is it different or the same than what you expected? And what are some of the things of being a female CEO, a black female CEO that have been a surprise to you?
0: You know, I think honestly, it's it's twofold. On one side, it's like, okay, great. I got this cute little title, but it's also, It's not burden. I have the responsibility to do something with it. I can't just say, oh, checked off a list. I'm a black CEO, the first black CEO, mind you, of the organization I'm with. It's not, yay, it's cute. We did it. It's okay. This title is for the streets. Who needs it where do we got to go to say we got the ceo of casa la here advocating for us standing up for us you know giving hope and inspiration to other people to walk into these roles creating pathways for other women women of color people that have been impacted by the system to have access to these pathways but using this title and leveraging it to open doors Charity, a year ago, yeah, I had some positionality. I had some power because of the committees I sat on, but it took a, sometimes the response was a little longer. I know that with this title now, I can I can send an email and get a quick response. Um, I can reach out to someone and they're going to move and they're going to act. And so being intentional about what am I asking for? How am I um, demanding change in our system? How am I being a part of reimagining what child welfare looks like and how am I Not being the voice of our children, but using it to pull in people that have experienced what they experienced and say, hey, you know, and get actually ask the question that no one asked me, what do you need? What are are we doing wrong? What what can we help you with? You know, what happened to lead to this? And what do you feel is a solution to your life? And so being a CEO, it's like just being able to build and have an amazing team of like-minded people that are going to really advocate and fight for change and aren't there to make a profit, aren't there for status or to feel as if they're a part of an elite group group of people, but to leverage that position and that title for good. Because how terrible would it be if I'm the first Black CEO and I just sat back, you know, delegated, everyone do your job, we're good. And I didn't leave an imprint in this world. I just continue to do business as usual. I allowed you know, say a board of directors to to guide everything we do with no input for myself because I'm just happy to be here. No, I have a responsibility to speak up when I don't believe in things. I have a responsibility to be a voice of dissent when I need to be. I have a responsibility to be candid and honest and open about, you know, my feelings, what I think, but also to really normalize <laughs> shared decision-making in organizations to realize that I don't come in as a CEO with all the rules and all the bright ideas. Yeah, I got some really amazing ideas, but I also realized that other people in the organization do too. And I realized that we all, regardless of our title, play different roles that are key to the organization thriving and being impactful. And so I tell my team, you know, screw hierarchy. Yeah, we all got different titles because we're a big puzzle and we play different pose roles or different pieces, but everyone's voice matter. We're all here to help children. So if you have something to say, speak up. If you think, you know, my idea is trash, say it. Just say it nicely. You know, and we'll pick whatever idea is the best and put it, you know, in this box and decide which one is the one to go. But it's also normalizing, you know, I think one of the best things about being a CEO is being able to normalize work-life balance. And I say that because if we're saying we're here to help children and families, but I have staff coming in, burnt the hell out overworked, underpaid, undervalued, that's going to directly impact the people we're saying we're going to serve. So I'm being so intentional about normalizing, being happy, normalizing, being healthy, normalizing, not missing your children's recitals or basketball games or doctor's appointments or caring for your mom or dad because you have to show up at a job, and clock in every day and sit there and act like for four hours you're doing something where well, you actually already completed the task. <laughs> so I'm normalizing. How do we be productive and take back our time? How do we be productive and, you know, thrive and have flexibility and be happy and focus on mental health? Um, I tell my staff your health and your family come first. This job won't be here, and this job is going to get done very very well if you're if you're whole, if you feel taken care of.
1: Have you been working from home?
0: I have. Oh, my gosh. I have. And I love it. We're in no hurry to go back.
1: And so do you think that as the CEO, you'll continue to enforce a work from home strategy?
0: So that's the cool thing. I'm not enforcing anything. I've given my team the power of flexibility and choice where we all got together and said, "Okay, what works? And then we realized, oh, there's not a one-size-fits-all solution to this. Everyone has different needs. Everyone has different wants. Some people want to work in the office. Some people don't. Some people really have enjoyed being home with their kids, not having to commute far distances. And so really sitting down um, and individual by individual, figuring out what works for your life. How are you going to be most productive? How are you going to be most happy while you're being productive? And we created a plan for each team and each group that's flexible you know because whatever realizing that whatever we put in place today no matter how great it is it may change and that's okay we'll change with it um so yeah i'm giving my team the power of flexibility and choice they've been amazing they've been super productive because people want to prove that i can do well and be happy and when we need to be in court when we need to be with the youth when we need to be with our volunteers when we need to show up at events we're there but if we don't need to be in the office you know acting like we're we're working then Way. do it if you're working from home and your background happens to be Bora cool you made the meeting that's amazing I'm glad you made the meeting you get to check off you, you, you finished your work cool enjoy Bora Bora you know not micromanaging my team live life be happy don't put a filter up because you want to hide your background or put a filter up because you want to hide your background I don't care where you are I don't care where you're working from I care that we're changing lives we're impacting people um, and we're doing our job live life damn it
1: live life I love that. I really feel like, you know, you are at the tippity top of a C-suite executive position and to be able to share that you have found this beautiful balance. And again, walking your talk as you normal, as you always do, just for other CEOs that are out there and other companies that are out there that are listening, how successful you've been in being able to collaboratively find what hybrid solutions work for a company and that these hybrid solutions actually benefit productivity and, benefit the success of a company, as opposed to thinking that, you know, employees are running amok at home or whatever. Yeah, that's super, super duper cool. So this has been incredible. What is next for you? Do you see three years out, five years out, 10 years out, 20 years out? Will you run for president? Gosh,
0: I hope not. So it's funny. I, and I think I, I stopped planning my life. I always had this like I went to college to be a lawyer. I thought I was going to be doing all these other things. But You know, I I believe that there's a purpose for my life and every phase of my life I'm going through is just to prepare me for what's next. I might be with Casa LA forever. You know, that's the plan currently. But I also realize that I don't know what my future holds. I just wait and see. I sit back. I put a thousand percent of who I am into whatever I'm doing currently and I just stop planning ahead. I just go with the flow. I allow my doors to be open and wide, my heart and my mind to be open and wide, and I go where the calling takes me I go where my purpose leads me so I don't know that's but I, I love it here yeah <laughs> so yeah. I, I do I love it where I am so
1: I'm happy I can finally say I'm, I'm happy mm. I'm in a
0: really good place
1: mm. well I am happy for you and I'm so in awe of you and the life that you've created so brilliantly just super thankful to know you and now more people will know you too so thank you and if you enjoyed today's show, be sure to like, subscribe, share, and leave your rebel stories of reinvention for me at themothersofreinvention.com. I'm Jess Zano, and this is The Mothers of Reinvention. Bye. Yeah, back it, back it. Yeah, pull up to the bump and Read the signal Cover me Cause I'm changing How to handle
0: on it My life But I'm okay. When I get to where I'm going Gonna have you saying it If I die Young back up.